Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another history episode of the podcast is the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Ward, hello again. Good to hear you. It's good to hear you, too. So we just did an episode with our good friend Vince O'Hara, and so the audience should be up to speed on the latest and greatest from Naval History. So why don't we just get right to our guest? Another article in the October issue of Naval History is called Japan's Deadliest Weapon. And the author is the acclaimed and famous, legendary Norman Polmar, longtime friend uh, and confidant. So it's good to hear your voice, Norman, in these uh, challenging times. Uh, you and I go back many years, uh, back to when I was a lieutenant. Um, and uh, you were uh, what? You were a, a younger a historian. You were a civilian, younger historian. Um, right. So let's talk about this article. What was Japan's deadliest weapons? As we talk about the China virus and all the other sort of rumor and innuendo and, and things about how this thing was synthesized, uh, biological weapons are back in the news in some form or fashion, as they have been really since the war in Iraq. What were Japan's deadliest weapons? Well, the Japan's deadliest weapons during World War II and actually in the 30s uh, was biological weapons. The Japanese started research into this area from a military viewpoint in the early 1930s. They actually established a germ warfare center in Harbin in Manchuria uh, in 1931-32. And from there, it just took off. At its height in World War II, there were more than 3,000 scientists, technicians, and soldiers uh, running their germ warfare center. And they actually used them in China. You, you talk about the infamous Unit 731, Norman. And, um, right. It sets that up was a, a co- that sort was of a code group. name for their biological warfare unit, uh, which both developed the weapons and as I say, actually employed them in China on several occasions. But they ran tests against Chinese and possibly captured Americans, Americans from the Bataan Death March. Some of them may have been brought to Japan and then into Manchuria for tests, Uh, possibly some Australian soldiers also. Uh, But they literally killed thousands of Manchurians and Chinese, both in their experiments and subsequently in actually using them in China. And of course, the great sort of arch villain of history, if you will, in this case, is Shiro Ichi, um, the enigmatic uh, one who spearheaded this whole program and carried it out to the bitter end of World War II, which sets up kind of a gruesome contrafactual. They were considering using this uh, stuff uh, as the war wound down, and it wasn't looking too good for them, weren't they? They were, they were looking at using it against the United States at least two ways. One, during the uh, latter stages of the war, the Japanese sent balloons with incendiary devices uh, into the United States and a few into Canada. There was some talk about using them to carry uh, biological uh, plague-filled containers instead of the incendiary devices. Also, the Japanese built during World War II the world's largest submarines, the I-400 class, 
each of which could carry three seaplanes, float planes. Uh, these ships were designed to, at first, to bomb New York, then the Panama Canal, and they never carried out a mission, although three of the several were completed by the end of the war. But there was some talk of using their seaplanes to fly over West Coast cities and drop plague containers. So what what kept so, them what kept uh, the them from Japanese doing this? Were serious about developing and using these weapons. So so why didn't they? What happened that uh... the war ended? Okay, the war ended too soon for them to weaponize them for use against the United States. Now you mentioned Ishii, and that's spelled I S H double I. Uh, Ishii, who was head of this organization, seven thirty one, their code name for their biological experiments and weapon, weaponization. But Ishii, uh, at the end of the war, was captured by the United States, but he never stood trial as a war criminal. In return for Ishii and a few other of his staff uh, lecturing at the Army, U.S. Army's Biological Research Center in Cape, Camp Dietrich, Maryland, and giving us total information on his program, uh, he was allowed to go free at the end of the war. And what did we do with that information? Did that become our NBC program? Yes. Now, our program was twofold. One, offensive weapons, and two, defensive weapons. But very soon into the Cold War, we stopped the offensive weapon program. And um, as an advisor to Secretary of the Navy, uh, I had access to the work at Camp Dietrich, and we stopped that program, the offensive. We continued, and to this day, I believe, and this is just a guess, that we continue defensive measures against biological weapons. One of the things you mentioned it is really kind of scary food for thought is, what if we had not gone with the atomic bomb option? What if we had invaded the home islands of Japan? That's very likely when they would have pulled the trigger on using some of these things, um, it sounds like, um, because that would have been their court of last resort when the shores of Japan itself are actually being stormed. Uh, well, what are your thoughts that on time, that? As I say, they had not weaponized uh, their germ, if you will, their germ weapons. They had not been weaponized to the extent they could be used against the United States, either by the uh, submarine-launched aircraft or by the balloon balloons. And by the way, they launched about 9,000 balloons, as I recall, uh, of which a few hundred, only a few hundred, made the 6,000-mile journey into the northwest United States and Canada. Uh, had we invaded uh, Japan, and the plan was underway to start in the fall of 45, uh, and the code name was Downfall for the operation, uh, and there's a book by that name, code name Downfall, that I highly recommend. As I was saying, though, the um, Japanese would have used everything. They mobilized civilians with wooden spears. Uh, they they hid kamikaze aircraft waiting for our landing ships to approach the coast in the fall of 45. And in my mind, there's no question that they would not have had to weaponize, that is for delivery, their biological weapons. They could have just loaded them into trucks and driven the trucks into our troops. 
Um, no, it would have been horrible, and both because of conventional weapons and no doubt they would have used biological weapons had we invaded the homeland. There were a couple of articles published uh, in August this year, the anniversary of the Japanese surrender and the atomic bombings. Uh, they said such things as the Japanese were surprised by the Russian invasion. Uh, the Russians had agreed a few months earlier uh, with the Allies that they would enter the war in the Pacific, which they did uh, on about August 12th, 13th, 14th, uh, when Japan surrendered. But that had been agreed upon previously, and the Japanese had detailed knowledge of the Russian troop movements, the Russian aircraft movements, and other uh, Russian forces moving into the Pacific area. Uh, they were moving mostly by the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and Japan and Russia being at peace with one another, uh, Japanese couriers rode the Trans-Siberian Railroad continuously from Moscow to the Far East, and they were able to count the troop trains going, going toward Siberia. So it was definitely the atomic bombs that ended the war, and had they not, the casualties inflicted on the assaulting American troops, both with conventional weapons and good points you've raised with biological weapons, would have been horrendous. So we, we talked about, or we mentioned Unit 731. Eric was talking about that, and there's a picture in the article of a facility outside of Harbin, China, and it looks like something out of central casting in terms of an evil place. Um, that was after it was bombed. Okay, yeah, okay, it looks, okay, that makes a little more sense. Words like ricin and anthrax, you know, became part of the popular consciousness, you know, post 9-11. Um, let's put a finer point on some of what this this evil genius was into. Methods that he was going to deliver, things like flea bombs, like literally flea bombs and different experiments with hypothermia and frostbite. You know, what were some of the things that... that uh, that this this guy was was doing, and you mentioned that he was experimenting with human subjects. You know what what were what were these ways that they were going to try to affect uh, you know casualties or or weapons of mass destruction? Well, uh, in the late thirties, nineteen forty, Japanese aircraft did fly over Chinese villages and spread. Uh, infected fleas. Uh, they also developed a 55-pound, as I recall, uh, bomb to be dropped from aircraft, uh, which carried fleas, but were fitted with oxygen containers so that the fleas would not die from the high altitude, the lack of oxygen uh, for the aircraft that were delivering the bombs. Uh, these bombs also carried anthrax and uh, all sorts of, I guess the term is horrible, and highly deadly uh, agents. As I say, a number of experiments were carried out against ch towns, uh, villages in China uh, with horrendous uh, results. But even worse was their taking Chinese, Manchurians, and possibly U.S. and Australian servicemen by the hundreds and subjecting them uh, to these biological agents. So he was sort of the, the Japanese Mangalay, right? Would that be a good analogy? I guess. 
so, yes, yes. I hadn't quite thought of it that way. I've always considered Ishii to be unique yeah. among the history's villains. Yeah, I'm not sure how you compare these people. I'm not sure to yeah. whom one could compare him. Well, I mean, just the sort of, again, evil genius of of even figuring out how do you get the fleas to survive during the flight and then not die when the casing comes apart and so you can, you know, uh, accurately deliver 30,000 fleas. Uh, you know, that that's that's just the, the sort of brain power put to a really, as you say, horrific end. It's just mind-boggling. All right. No, there's, there's no question. Uh, among history's villains, uh, he's one of the least known, but in my opinion, one of the worst. And again, it's because there was absolutely no defense against it. Um, you could defend against artillery shells. You could dig underground. You could armor vehicles. Uh, you could uh, defend against even the atomic bomb by shooting down the aircraft carrying it. In other words, every weapon man developed at almost the same time people conceived of means of countering that weapon. But uh, with respect to biological warfare, then, and as we're learning even now today, there's virtually no defense against it. So were we aware of these weapons being in development? You know, so as we talk about things that inform the calculus of using the bomb or invading the homeland, Operation Downfall, uh, did our intel know that this was sort of looming, that they would have this capability? No, my, my research has not uh, detected any uh, significant indication that the Allies had any idea this was going on. As a matter of fact, Ishii was known to uh, some Western intelligence source uh, activities, but as a, um, a scientist almost, uh, one of the things he developed was a phenomenal water purification system. Uh, for use by troops in the field, which was very efficient. So he was known, but not in the context of developing the world's deadliest weapons. The crowning irony is he scooted, he skated on having war crime charges brought against him. Um, that's just amazing to me. They should have, you know, they could have offered him life imprisonment or something in return for his knowledge, although. Uh, the Russians captured the facility, and the Russians apparently did try some of his staff whom they captured. But he and a significant number of officers were brought here to the United States to lecture and to teach. So again, probably a lame, ham-fisted analogy, but it's, it's like the Japanese Werner von Braun, except he's about biological warfare instead of, you know, rocket technology. Right, right. No, Werner Van Braun did very well with us, uh, but he was never considered a war criminal, as a large number of Germans were. Uh, he was, uh, although he knew that slave labor was being used in the production of missiles, uh, his direct participation, I don't believe, and I'm not certainly not a, an expert in this field, I don't believe there had ever been a direct connection between uh, von Braun and the treatment of, the, of literally the slave laborers used in the production of the missiles. Yeah. So, but the point is, is these guys were kind of, because of what they knew um, about the creation of weapons, 
unorthodox, in some ways arguably evil weapons, the V-1, V-2 rockets, um, you know, targeting civilian populations, whether that's a war crime or not. I, to your point, I, I don't know as I sit here, um, but that that was sort of a, uh, as much as it was a, an offensive weapon, it was a weapon of terror uh, against the civilian populace. So the leveraging of that kind of intellectual capital to, in the post-war, now suddenly it's a Cold War where it's United States versus the USSR, people being let off the hook for what they know. It's kind of an amazing uh, sort of quid pro quo that was going on in the wake of the war. Well, just we have to be careful, though, when we talk about the V-1, V-2 missiles, and Von Braun was associated only with the V-2, uh, the ballistic missile, as opposed to the guided or cruise missile V-1. Um, but Van Braun's weapons uh, were area weapons which killed thousands and thousands of civilians. But then the Allies had to be careful because U.S. and British bombing of, of virtually every German city that contained a major military facility or factory and the capital of Berlin uh, was killed tens of thousands of civilians. Yeah, uh, that reminds me. So last night, I w just this is a very random thing, but uh, watch the movie Slaughterhouse Five, right? Do you remember that oh, movie? Wow. Well, yes, Dresden, yes, right. Uh, yeah, it's about the bombing of Dresden. I mean, yes. it's a Vonnegut book, right? Uh, and and the book is is great. It his stuff never really translated into movies very well you know i i love mother night but the movie's not good and this movie's just plain weird right it's it's a early 70s art house kind of uh you know non-linear sort of thing it's very much a a, a production of, of its time of, of that era but you know the centerpiece of the movie is the firebombing of dresden which was a very beautiful city uh you know a lot of uh gargoyles and cathedrals and and artwork and and uh, it was sort of an art center uh, for that region. And, uh, you know, it was destroyed uh, in the firebombings to Norman's point. Obviously, we didn't have much of a leg to stand on for talking. About, hey, you killed civilians. Uh, the the This was, I guess, an RAF uh, was who did that particular evil deed in terms of the firebombing of Dresden. That wasn't a U.S. Uh, Army Air Corps. That was a uh, an RAF attack. Is that correct, Norman? Do you know that off the top of your head? I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, but by the same token, there were cities, Berlin being the key, uh, where we bombed it during the daylight and the British bombed it at night. Um, and again, virtually every city that contained a major military installation, a key railroad junction and factories, um, those cities were bombed day by us, the United States Army Air Forces, and at night by the Royal Air Force. Um, these were considered military targets uh, because of the factories, for example. Uh, we even killed Frenchmen when we bombed the U-boat pens of submarine bases on the French coast. Uh, we killed scores of French civilians who lived or worked in the area. Um, war is horrible, and the Unit 731, Ishii's efforts uh, would make it just more horrible. I mean, it was just a, a different degree. It's, it's I, I don't know how to verbalize it. It's just, uh, it was beyond the pale, as the Irish would have said. Yeah, no, it's, it's sort of interesting as we 
we sort of explore this topic of, you know, we did bad things too. Where is the line, right? And and as Eric was mentioning and has pointed out in your article, in the end game, uh, it could have gotten pretty grisly with the use of these weapons as a last resort to defend the Japanese homeland. Um, there is another picture. I was talking about the picture of the uh, where the unit headquarters was in this article. There's another picture that's super sort of sci-fi um, Orwellian uh, on page 37 of these three guys carrying a gurney um, with a, uh, a subject on it. I don't know if he's alive or dead, but they're wearing these sort of mop gear with these really weird, like alien looking glasses. It, it, this is something you'd expect to see on a punk rock album or something. Um, this, this image is just really eerie, you know? Um, and, and it, it kind of just sort of sets the tone for just what these guys were into. Absolutely. And again, had we not dropped the atomic bombs and I am thoroughly 100% convinced, uh, that are dropping the bombs ended the war. Uh, and I've, I've had this debate, ironically, with Edward Teller, may rest in peace. Teller believed very strongly we should have given the Japanese a test, an example of the atomic bombs. And he and I debated this on a couple of occasions. And there's no question in my mind that had we invaded, had we put troops ashore and landing craft, uh, on Kyushu, the southernmost island, uh, in uh, the fall of 45, and then the main islands in spring of 46, uh, American casualties, dead and injured, would have been at least a million, at least a million. And quite possibly, if they released some of these weapons that Ishii had developed, uh, we're talking about 50% casualties in the invading force of two, two and a half, of two and a half, three million. Uh, just unbelievable. So to regress a bit in our discussion, uh, the atomic bombs, uh, in both of them, uh, were needed. Uh, the minutes of the council, the six men who ran Japan at the end of the war, uh, the minutes of their meeting after the first atomic bomb, it, it displayed, interest in what had happened, but they knew we had only one atomic bomb because they knew how difficult bombs, the atomic bomb was to develop, and they were ready to carry on until three days later when we dropped the second. And that's when they asked the emperor to sit in, and the decision was made to end the war. But again, had we landed uh, the casualties, which we estimate from conventional and non-conventional Japanese weapons and the two invasions uh, would have been a million dead and injured uh, if something like this were employed. Uh, I shudder to think of, of the numbers. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so, Eric, the lead photo, um, I don't see the caption for it, um, but there's, again, two guys in this, this early era mop gear doing something to a subject there. I don't know if they're are they pumping him full of of biological no, I, I think they're actually trying to clean him off. Or are they? Okay. Okay. I, I believe that. I'm mm -hmm. not certain. But I've seen the photo before. And I think that these uh, are Japanese technicians, scientists, trying to clean off a victim so the victim can be examined. And I don't want to think of the, of the way he would have been examined. Yeah. 
again, just mm-hmm. pure evil, just pure, mm-hmm. unadulterated evil. Um, but again, in warfare, um, where you draw the line, I don't know. It, it, I guess it's clear because uh, NBC has always been out of bounds since World War One. Um, it's the reason we went to war in Iraq. It was the justification for the invasion of Iraq. Um, and certainly the, the uh, use of biological agents in Syria, uh, Assad against his own people, has, has been condemned by, uh, you know, all Well, it, it led nations. the United States, it led President Trump to twice uh, shoot Tomahawk missiles into Syria. Right. So as you said, Norman, war is evil, but there are subsets of uh, war that are beyond the pale, right? And, and it, it is well-defined. It's not it's not, not well-defined. It, it is well-defined. Um, most recently in the news, uh, there were, uh, a letter was intercepted with Ricin in it that uh, was uh, addressed to the president. I guess they, they figured out who had sent it. It was a, a woman. Um, and when you hear about that, just like we, we were deathly afraid of anthrax in the wake of 9-11, and it was in the public consciousness, you know, the, the notion of that, of, of this chemical, biological, nuclear agents in the population, in water sources, uh, dropped from the sky uh, is just a horrific uh, idea. Again, what could have been had the war lasted longer or had we done other things in terms of the end game, uh, it could have been a lot more even beyond the two nuclear weapons, which were obviously a, you know, an exponential level, horrific, so horrific that they've never been used since then, um, which is the entire thing about the Cold War. It's the deterrent effect of having a nuclear stockpile. And that's probably as a function of what we saw happen when they were actually used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that is certainly beyond conventional weapons evil. But again, read. Correct. Let me be very rude, as I often am, and interrupt. And that is today you can count on one hand and maybe another finger or two the number of countries that have nuclear weapons. We don't know how many countries have biological weapons. At least the public doesn't know. Right. And that's why it's such a big deal to us to make sure that Iran doesn't get nuclear weapons and that, you know, every time there's a. a, a third world nation or a, uh, an, a, a, you know, a religious dictatorship or whatever uh, that is, is, looks like they may be getting nuclear weapons that we go to great lengths to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, because it's much easier for a country to get a biological weapon. Much easier. Right. That's a scary thought. Yep. Right. And it's much easier to transport one from one country to another, a biological weapon compared to a nuclear weapon. Well, someone just tried to assassinate the president of the United States with a biological weapon, as you pointed out. By the way, I saw her mugshot today. They did catch her. Yeah, yeah. What does she look like? I haven't seen the mugshot. Well, does anybody ever look good in a mugshot? No, this is true. This is true. (laughs) Everybody winds up looking like Nick Nolte. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, since we have the illustrious Norman Polmar on a Naval History podcast, it would be remiss not to bring up the fact that Norman has contributed to this magazine literally from the get-go with his long-running and immensely popular historic aircraft column. And how does it feel, Norman, to still be working on that? One thing I've always wanted to ask you, 
is haven't you written about every possible historic aircraft in historic aircraft? No, no. Um, my column, by I now? think it's, I mean, you it's, come it's up about with 150, almost 150 of them. Uh, the first 30, by the way, uh, Rick Russell, who just stepped down as head of the Naval Institute Press, when Rick was military uh, editor of Brassie's Publishing, he took my first 30 columns and pub- actually published them as a book uh, called Historic Aircraft. But uh, no, I've done about 150 columns, and that's 150 aircraft. A couple of columns had multiple aircraft, but uh, there are another 150 aircraft that the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps have flown, but I should write about one of these days. Please, because historic aircraft is on my shelf here in my home office attic. Um, and uh, as you mentioned... Minute, why isn't it on your desk? Because <laughs> my desk is covered with computer screens. you don't use it screens. every day? I do. It's, a, it's, it's within arm's reach, ready reference. Oh, okay, no doubt. just checking. Just like your entire it's body of work. devotional. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. But no, writing these columns with Jim Kiela's drawings now uh, is just a lot of fun. And when I get frustrated with life or the pandemic or writing something for the Naval Institute, or may I say another publisher, uh, I just sit down and start writing about airplanes. And I just find that's very relaxing and very educational. Something about airplanes makes everything better. <laughs> right? Spoken like an aviator. I, yeah. Well, Norman, I got to throw this out here. Best, worst, most unusual, favorite, least favorite uh, of aircraft you've covered in your column. Just anything, any particular one that jumps to mind. Uh, oh, that's very difficult. Very difficult. Uh, it's like seven questions. The, first one, the OS-2U Seagull, the float plane we used in large numbers in World War II. Um, you know, if I had to pick one, but that's it's very difficult. As a matter of fact, uh, with Dana Bell, who was for many years a senior analyst at the National Air and Space Museum, Dana and I wrote uh, in 2003, it was published, the anniversary of the Wright Brothers flight. I think it was 2003. Uh, Dana and I wrote a book, which the Naval Institute published, called 100 Historic Aircraft. And there we chose from all countries 100 aircraft that we thought were the most significant. Uh, that was a lot of fun. But I, when that came out, I was asked which was my favorite. And I could answer that. It was a Sikorsky uh, Grand, the world's first four-engine aircraft. But I can't answer your question of hundred and almost 150 columns. Um, I don't think I have a favorite. I can make you a list of 10 or 12, but... They're like children. Eight percent of them. They're like children. You love uh, them all. It's just a lot of fun. And again, um, Jim Kiela's drawings. uh, Looking at now the October issue, where he's got a a blue and yellow F5L, which was a flying boat of the World War One era. Uh, Just, just I enjoy all of them. And and we, like Eric said, we enjoy the fact that you've been publishing in naval history all these years not to mention proceedings we were kidding but uh, you, you know you you give so much and you've been here for us for so many years um, it's fantastic to be able to talk to you and thank you for your contribution to the independent forum for all this time and personally thank you for your friendship all these years the article is japan's deadliest weapons 
It's in the October issue of Naval History Magazine. Our guest has been legendary naval historian, legendary military historian, Norman Polmar. Norman, thank you for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome. And by the way, be careful about calling me a historian. Um, uh, my my degree is in history, but uh, I ain't no hysterian. <laughs> Great being with both of you, and I've had the privilege of knowing both of you for many years and working with both of you for many years in several different roles. Uh, I think the podcasts I've heard have been great. Please keep going. You know, we're, we're, we're actually ha uh, doing more as a function of being remote. Um, so it's been an unintended consequence of, the, of these unusual times. But thank you for listening and thank you for that encouragement. We will certainly endeavor to do just that. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you, Norman. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again next time.